Hello, and welcome to the 21st episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. As many of you know, we are starting our new series this month, focusing on inspiring women. And what better way to begin the series than by talking to the incredible astrophotographer and fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society, in general, all-around awesome person, Mary McIntyre. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you're having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Mary, would you like to start? So I'm having some lovely red wine. <laughs> and I am from Lancashire originally, but I now live in Oxfordshire. And I am a very avid amateur astronomer and astrophotographer and astronomy sketcher. And on the back of that, I do a lot of astronomy talks and writing and basically most of my life revolves around astronomy these days. So so this is the thing for those that are listening. I've known Mary for what, about five years now, I think. And I knew nothing about astronomy, but Mary, and I'm sure some of you have looked her up before you've watched the show, she is an incredible artist and you take astronomy to levels that I didn't even know were possible. You do what is called astronomy sketching, which we'll talk about in a bit. You create incredible jewelry. You do a lot of outreach work, getting kids involved in science. And I just want to know, before we even begin, like, how did you initially become interested in astronomy in the first place? Right back when I was about four years old, my mum was really fascinated by the moon because when she was a child, she was out of bed watching the moon landings. And I think she was just one of those typical child of the Apollo era kind of people. So I got my interest of the moon from her and we would always look at it at night. And ever since I was little, I was kind of a chronic insomniac. I was just destined to stay out in the dark. And I just used to sit at my bedroom window and stare at the moon And then when I was in school, we had a classroom library and there was a ladybird book, which was the stars and their mythology. Well, let's pause. What is a ladybird book? I only found out about it when I moved to the UK. So what is, and first of all, ladybird, for those who are from North America, especially the US, ladybird is a ladybug, not to get confused. So continue. (laughs) Ladybird books were kind of series of really short children's books and some of them were kind of telling fairy tales some of them were the fairy tales that reigned at much younger markets but they also did kind of really educational versions so they're really small hardback books and there were quite a few on astronomy and I've bought them all off eBay since and I managed to get hold of this particular book that I was in love with so much and it explained things in an easy to understand way with lots of pictures and that just captured my imagination And moving on from that, we had a set of encyclopedias at home and I just used to spend hours looking at the star charts and the space artists that were featured in those books. And I just I was really just captivated by the whole world of astronomy from being really young. Mm. Because I can remember when I was little, there's a picture that my parents have that my sister gave to me some years ago. And I remember Haley's comment. So I must have been I hate to date you, by the way, I apologize. (laughs) She looks divine. Um, I think it was nine. So Haley's comment came and it was apparent in the sky for X amount of weeks. And my dad had this telescope and it was only used for his um, bird watching. But he decided maybe we could get a good enough view of Haley's comment. I think it was the only time I used a telescope. And sure enough, there's a picture of me. I just come out of the bath. I'm in a bathrobe and I'm looking through this telescope 
And I remember looking at Haley's Comet and just being fascinated by that because, you know, how many times do you get a chance to experience something like that? And I think there is something about space. I know they say the great unknown and everyone thinks of Star Wars and Star Trek. And I'm going to be honest, I'm more of a Star Trek fan than a Star Wars fan, so please don't hate me. I do, love the, I do love the Ewok movie, which was in 1984, slightly different. But what I'm saying is there's something um, almost mystical about it. And not to start giving out Zodiac signs and information like that. I think there's the mystery that makes it so intriguing. It's that great unknown. The un, you, know, you can't really touch it, but yet you can at the same time through a different, through a different lens. So I guess I want to know what inspired you to consider a career in this field because you started it quite later in life as opposed to the beginning. I did. Initially, I did my degree in biological sciences and worked in scientific research. And it was one of those astronomy was kind of in the background and a bit of an interest, but in the lack of a good mentor when I was a child meant that it was very much on the sidelines. And it kind of came about because when I injured my back and couldn't work anymore, I suddenly had a lot of time on my hands and I'm not somebody that would ever waste time if I have it. So fortunately at that time, I had the opportunity to do the astronomy GCSE. What's the GCSE? That's another thing. (laughs) Yeah, the GCSE levels for people that are not in the UK generally are what you would do when you are 16 years old, the last exams you do in high school, and then you go off to college to do A levels. So it used to be O levels, but it turned into a GCSE. And I had the opportunity of doing that in a school that I used to work in um, part time. So I would go in on a Friday night in my wheelchair after school with a group of year nine kids who were doing it two years early. So they were probably 13 years old. So mum and I would be sat there with all these kids. And this just triggered something in me. I thought I knew a bit about astronomy until I started doing that and then realized I knew nothing about astronomy. And it was just so interesting. Every single thing that we learned was so interesting. And I then decided I had to take that further. So I studied with the Open University. Kind of aside of that, when I moved to Oxfordshire to live with my also astronomer husband, the local history group in our village asked me to do a talk on the history of astronomy. And I just used to love doing presentations when I was a scientist and also doing stuff in some of the other courses that I've done. And I just threw myself into this talk and spent hours researching it. And it went really well. And off the back of that, somebody else asked me to do a talk about um, beginners astrophotography. And I'd started photography when I was doing the astronomy GCSE. So I was kind of learning how to kind of get better results as I went along. Still am. Constant learning curve. And it was kind of side by side, these talks started to happen. And then I got a commission to write an article for Sky at Night magazine. Well, let's talk about Sky at Night, not to cut you off, because I don't think people realize how much of a big deal this is. Sky at Night has a a massive cult following. So could we just talk about Sky at Night first before we segue on? Yeah, Sky at Night is a very famous um, BBC TV show that was hosted by the very famous and very awesome Patrick Moore. And it's, it's just an institution in the UK. And the Sky at Night magazine is kind of like a sister company almost. And some of the people that are on the Sky at Night TV show write for the magazine. So when the features editor approached me to do this, it was initially imposter syndrome. Why did they want me to do this? And then, you know, I'm thinking back, I did a certificate with the Open University and I've got the astronomy GCSE. I do have the knowledge here and I 
I'd learned a lot with the photography. And one thing I love is helping people and sharing my knowledge. So if I know how to do a particular photography technique, I am more than happy to tell people step by step how I do it. So the first article was about that, doing star trails photography, which is one of my favorite subjects. And it all just kind of started from there. Word of mouth spread. I was doing talks to camera clubs and then university for the And now age. coffee and cocktails. I mean, I my goodness. <laughs> and it's been amazing. And I've been on several other podcasts, like photography podcasts and things like that. And now, obviously, in lockdown, everybody's been doing stuff via Zoom. So that means I've now been able to do talks to places where I couldn't possibly have driven to. Well, can I just say, this is the first time in months that we are doing a podcast in our house and in our gloriously clean, imagine pristine clean living room, just might I add. <laughs> so I'm going to apologize in advance if you hear the pitter patter of small feet or the barking of a large dog. Anyway, <laughs> continue. Yeah, so it, it wasn't really a conscious decision to kind of turn this into a career, but it kind of just snowballed from there. And I've now written about 16 articles for Sky at Night. I've written for the Yearbook of Astronomy. I've had photographs shown in various publications, but all the time I'm still learning. I think it's one of those subjects. There are so many areas of astronomy, you can't possibly know all of it. So that quest for more knowledge just keeps me going. And just that fact that I'm helping people and mentoring people, it's just wonderful. I just love sharing that. So this is interesting because um, one of the things that I guess you would say was is your specialty because again, like you've mentioned, astronomy can go down a, a myriad of of different pathways. Your specialty is astrophotography. And I want to know what is the difference between astrophotography and what we would consider more mainstream photography? Basically, if it's a picture of the night sky and stars, I think it's astrophotography. Okay. Um so it's generally done at a higher ISO level for your camera because you need the higher sensitivity to pick up stars because obviously it's dark and stuff like that. But those kind of beautiful deep sky images that you see and like the Hubble telescope have taken, these images have got hours and hours and hours of total exposure time. So it's not just a quick snap. Now, you can take pictures of the moon with an iPhone held up to a telescope eyepiece. And yeah, mine looks like a giant white orb. <laughs> it looks like my face. Let's be honest with the flash on. <laughs> yeah, the moon is very bright. People don't realize how bright it is. So when you begin, you nearly always overexpose the picture. But even with very modest equipment, you can get good pictures of the sun. If you've got a proper filter on the front of the telescope, you can get good pictures of the moon. You can get decent nightscape pictures. But once you're looking at these deep sky objects, you're talking about having to do lots and lots of identical pictures and then use computer software to stack them together. In the UK, there is hardly anywhere that is dark enough for you to do 10 hour exposure in a single go. And then one thing in the picture would then ruin it. So I tend to do all my pictures around two minute exposures, but just keep going for the entire night and just build up the pictures that way. Some people will do 25 hour plus exposures. Some people will do kind of days and days and days. But there are a lot of interesting objects up there that I want to photograph. So I don't tend to dedicate an entire winter season to one object because there's just a plethora of interesting things up there. And I want to look around at other ones as well. 
Yeah, and I will say about the pictures, it's not just that you are taking the picture of a moon because I don't think people fully appreciate the amount of effort that goes into the work that you do. You also are able to sort of label the different parts of the moon, the different craters. There is so much math that goes into the work that you're doing. I'm going to have you explain it because it is totally overwhelming. It's like being in a calculus class. (laughs) Could you explain what accompanies the picture so that if people are interested in astronomy, they get that extra, you know, level to it as well? And one of the things that I pride myself on is that my all my photographs are hosted on Flickr. And in the description box on Flickr, I list absolutely everything that I did to take that photograph. I also list all the software that I've used in the processing of it and how I've processed it so people know what they need to do to replicate it. Some people tend to hide that information. They're a little bit guarded about sharing it. If I know how to do it, I'm happy to tell other people. So on my Flickr page, I tend to do kind of list all of that in the description box. And the same with any of my YouTube videos, the description box is full of information about the object and how I've taken the picture. But I do sometimes go in and label that as well. I have a lovely moon poster and some of the craters I've just learned over time, lots of them I just can't remember. My brain just can't keep them in there. So I use my moon poster and I will go in and label things and just try and I don't go into too much detail about how those regions formed on the moon because I've got a like there are 5000 pictures on my Flickr stream if kind of 3000 of them are of the moon everyone by now would know how the seas formed and how the craters formed but how I actually got the picture I definitely keep all that information there. That's really interesting. Could you tell us a bit about what astronomy sketching is and how you got involved in that and how, as you put it, it makes you feel more connected with the object you're observing? One of the downsides for me when I got into photography is that all of my astronomy became about getting the perfect picture. And I would go out, open the observatory roof, take some pictures, go back inside kind of make the picture look nice, put it online and then forget about it. And I realized I'd gone a year without looking through an eyepiece. And that made me really sad because I never get tired of just scanning the sky with my binoculars or telescope. And I'd lost that connection. So I thought, right, I'm going to just leave my camera inside sometimes. I'm just going to take my favorite visual telescope out and just take pencil and paper outside and try and draw it. And my early sketches are very, very crude, Um, but it taught me how to kind of look at an object and kind of commit it to paper. And in order to sketch something, like astronomy sketching in general is about capturing something accurately. It's the way that our ancient astronomers used to capture because there were no photographs. So it is about trying to make this thing look accurate. But for me, it's become also quite artistic. So I do some sketches at the eyepiece, which are quick sketches, but other times I do it from a photograph and can spend five hours on one sketch. I've had people argue with me that technically that isn't a sketch because I've spent too long on it, but... God forbid it's a drawing. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think... I kind of feel like I'm channeling Galileo when I'm sketching the moon. And I know that if I overlay a photograph with my sketches, they wouldn't be that accurate. But neither are Galileo's sketches. They're not that accurate when you actually look at them. To be fair to him, his telescope probably magnified times two the first one that he had. So he did a really good job with what he had. But I think for me, it makes me study this object in so much detail that even if it's from a photograph, 
the next time I look at the moon, no matter what moon phase it is, I can recognize the craters that I've spent time drawing. So as an astronomer, I just became more knowledgeable and I think I became better at actually observing with my eyes because of sketching. That is really fascinating. And one thing I want to point out, because you do so many different amazing talks on astronomy in general, but you, you do a talk on the history of astronomy. And if we could just put in a little plug, could you tell us about the sort of aspects of history and astronomy that you discuss in your talks? The history of astronomy one covers absolutely everything. So from the beginning of astronomy right the way through to And what would be the day. beginning of astronomy? Well, going way back, there are cave paintings in France which date back to 17,500 BC. And they depict lots of pictures of bulls. But we've realized that if you superimpose a star map over it, they've actually captured the night sky. So wow. the constellation that we now know as Taurus um, is on there. The Pleiades, the Seven Sisters star cluster is there. There are also petroglyphs in Arizona and um, loads of other parts of the world that are depicting supernovas that have happened. That's when a, a big star kind of gets to the end of its life and explodes in a spectacular fashion. And that star will suddenly be the brightest star in the sky for a small time. And petroglyphs just littered around the desert you can see that are capturing the night sky they've wow. just um, carved it there so people have looked back at the night sky since the beginning of kind of human civilization and things like stonehenge we know they align with the solstices there are stone circles and wood circles like remnants all over the world and we don't really fully know what they were built for we know what they align to but we don't really know what they were built for and all of those things that are kind of in the Mayan culture, they've built calendars where you've got these notches on a hillside that align with the sun on a particular time every day. And the pyramids aligned with stars at certain times of the year as well, the shafts within the Great Pyramids. So there has been a connection to astronomy right back in history. So that really fascinates me. I will say, because I know from my anthropology background, one of the things I find so fascinating, and I think a lot of this really stems to the work I, uh, the lecture I taught on neo-paganism when I was um, teaching at Oxford, is this idea of uh, people trying to connect with their past, sort of reinventing the past. And for those who are pagan who are listening, I'm just go with me on this. Um, but this idea of, um, I know with, and I'm, I'm trying not to go on a tangent, but it does make me think about this. I know Margaret Adler, who was um, worked for the NPR, and she happened to be a pagan. One of the things that she talked about is this idea of combing through the ashes and trying to find bits of the past and then trying to respect it and reinvent it in the present. And one of the things that came up in the readings was this idea of um, attachment to the moon. And so her book was called Drawing Down the Moon. And um, what made me fascinated by that is that quite a lot of these groups educate themselves on the actual science behind it and the history behind it. And what I think is really interesting about the work that you're doing is that you're taking a subject that might seem quite abstract or a bit intimidating um, for individuals like myself who might run away from things like some math problems, and you're making it accessible to everybody. And one of the things I would be interested in knowing is what are the biggest challenges that you face in getting people interested in astronomy and in particular getting women interested in the subject matter? Um, with women in astronomy, I've been running the UK Women in Astronomy Network for a few years now. And it's really interesting because young girls 
if you go to Iran, it's, all the astronomy groups are female. No, it's it's just I mean really that that Islamic world were just amazing astronomers in the past. Were there female astronomers as well? Yes, um, going back in time, I, I've written an article that's going to be in the yearbook of astronomy and next year coming out in november which is about the the women going all the way back to like really far back we're talking about fatima and that there's just loads of women mostly had a male mentor so i think certainly in the past women did need a good male champion because women were not allowed to log discoveries they were not allowed to run observatories women were seen to be too weak to go out at night in the miasmas that were going to come down and uh, women were just too delicate a disposition to cope with the chilly night air in Oxford yet they would go off doing eclipse chasing on boats and going to plague ridden areas and risking shipwrecks and all of that kind of stuff I just find it really quite strange that we were frightened of going out in the dark in the chilly night but with girls, if I do stuff with cubs and scouts and in schools, the girls are just as interested in astronomy and space as the boys are. Something happens at high school age, and I don't know what that is, whether it's a confidence thing. But there are not, I mean, it's getting better. But in terms of senior roles for kind of role models in astronomy, there are really not that many females that are doing it. There are a lot of females kind of now at PhD level. So in senior roles, there's still a 10 to 1, 11 to 1 disparity in male to female. So th there is a big problem still. And there's a huge drive for getting women into STEM subjects. And there's kind of bringing Could the Could you daughter. define what STEM is? Yeah, it's science, technology, engineering and maths. Okay. So that encompasses a lot of like maths, physics, engineering, astronomy kind of falls into that category. I... Uh, I get a lot of bookings because I am a female that are doing talks and I find that almost not insulting exactly. I'm glad that I'm kind of flying the flag, but I hope by the, the repeat bookings are because people actually like my talks rather than me being the token female that's on the talk circuit. I try to be somebody that would inspire girls that are at that age where they may get turned off science and astronomy and I don't think anybody should be pushed into science and astronomy if they're not interested in it. If they want to pursue a career in a, a, a different path that is more female-led, that, that's great. But people, I didn't feel that I could be an astronomer when I was a teenage girl, even though I'd loved it my whole life. There was no mentors for me. There was just nothing to kind of help me along. So whenever I encounter females in the groups that I do teach to, I do my best to encourage them and keep them going on that path. I think it's just about being as helpful as possible and just encouraging the girls to do it, but also the boys, because there are some great male astronomers as well. And with the UK Women Astronomy Network, we're not trying to get positive discrimination because that's not the answer. No, absolutely it, it's not. It's really not. Nobody wants that. The females don't want that. Nobody wants to be given a job because they were a girl rather than because they, they were actually good at their job. Set. Yeah. So it's a really difficult thing to kind of manage because I'm not really sure what happens to turn women off going down that path. But there are a lot more females doing it now in, in a kind of less senior level. And I think that, you know, it is going to get better. It is going to keep getting better and better. And if I help a little bit by being on the talk circuit and doing the outreach that I do, then that's great. <laughs> 
Well, what do you think it takes to be a good astronomy mentor these days? And why do you think it was so hard to find one growing up? I think when I was younger, I was born in 1973, so there was no social media. <laughs> there used to be an observatory. I, I grew up in a town about five miles outside of Preston, and there was the Jeremiah Horrocks Observatory in Preston. And I didn't even know they did public observing nights. There, there was, just wasn't publicised. It was kind of a, a bit of a, a clicky group of people, I guess, that ran it, and they didn't really want that many people coming in and I'm you was talking about Haley's Comet I really I, I believe we've been pronouncing it wrong for years it's actually Hawley is the way that it's supposed to be pronounced but it feels weird Whoops. after 46 years of, 47 <laughs> years of calling it Halley I, I can't get my head around calling it Hawley but um I wanted to see that comet so bad and we used to have CFAX on the TV and I get up What's every that? morning it was the kind of a very primitive version of like a news network so you pressed a button on your TV and either Oracle or CFAX would come up depending which channel you was on and it was the most crude graphics you could imagine and it would have TV listings news headlines and honestly looked like it'd been done on a typewriter it was really crude but they had Halley Watch and they had this really crude star chart with the position of the comet and I went out every night trying to find that comet didn't see it and I found out years later that they had public observing nights during that time. Oh. And if only I'd known that that existed, I would have had at least somebody else that knew about astronomy. Because I got my telescope for my 11th birthday. I really didn't know what I was doing. And I managed to look at the moon through it. And I projected a picture of the sun. But that was pretty much all I managed to do. And then it kind of sat in the garage like so many telescopes do. So I just didn't have that. And I think it's partly because... No, people were just not as well connected. Things were not advertised as well. But in terms of being a good mentor now, I think that a willingness to share um, and the patience to explain that in a way that's easy to understand. And also to encourage people, there are so many aspects of astronomy. It covers a huge number of different kind of sub-subjects. And even if there's one of those you're not so keen on, you might not think you can cope with the maths involved with astrophysics, but we've now got astrobiology as a subject. If you're into biology like I am, that's an entirely new field that is just going to skyrocket in the next. No. And what is astrobiology? If you could explain to us, please. Um, yeah, it's basically looking for life on other planets. So we're not talking about green men here with slitty eyes. We're talking about probably extremophile microbial life. So these are microbes that can live in conditions that, well, humans certainly couldn't live in. Well, wasn't there a recent discovery that you could tell us about in terms yeah. of there being microbes in clouds? Is that correct? Yeah, um, it's, we don't know that there are actually microbes yet, but um, one of the things that you look for as an astrobiologist and just looking for life in general is looking at the atmospheres of other stars and planets around other stars to look for markers because there are certain compounds or molecular gases that cannot exist naturally they have to be produced by a microbe of some kind and recently there was um, really strong evidence for something called phosphine in the clouds of venus now venus has a very kind of acidic atmosphere it's a huge amount of pressure Isn't it mostly fire it's it's basically sulfuric acid 
<laughs> sulfuric acid it rains sulfuric acid there it's got a huge amount of atmospheric pressure so we would die within seconds without a spacesuit on venus Lovely. most space probes can't survive on venus but up in the atmosphere um, things are very different up in the cloud belts there things are very different and they've discovered phosphine in those atmospheric layers which implies there could be a microbe there a microbe that doesn't require oxygen they're called anaerobic microbes but like the stuff that lives in our gut and that these anaerobic bacteria would produce phosphine so it's a strong indicator there could be life in those cloud belts so then, follow-up question, how would you prove that? The only way to prove that is to get a probe there and actually sample the air and micro microscopically look at it. And that's, I think, hopefully what's going to happen. But it takes decades to plan these sorts of space missions. And as I said, it's, not, it's a very hostile environment there. And, you know... A probe isn't going to last very long. The electronics are not going to last very long. But just this week, we've discovered um, there's an orbiter around Mars and we've discovered there are actual liquid water lakes underneath the surface of Mars. And there is ExoMars mission is going there to look for evidence of past microbial life on Mars. I am 100% convinced we are going to find strong evidence for microbial life in our solar system within my lifetime. So astrobiology is a great field to get into. It's up and coming. It's, it's just all up for grabs. But there are lots of other areas of astronomy as well. And there are lots of different careers within astronomy and the space industry that may suit somebody. And as a mentor, you've just got to try and help find somebody, their interest that is most likely to make them succeed. And for me, I am happy, as I said before, to share any knowledge I have with people. I don't guard my knowledge and my secrets tightly. If I know something and somebody wants to learn it, I will teach it to them. I'm also very patient with people. I spend a lot of time doing one-to-one -one mentoring with people, usually via email or Facebook Messenger. I spend hours at night sometimes going back and forth with people. And it's amazing to me. There are people that have been messaging me for help when they first started with astrophotography who have taken that information and run with it. And they're now producing better planetary images than I can. And that, for me, is just job well done. You know, these guys are doing way better than I'm capable of now. And it started by me helping them. So... I, I love that and feel so proud when I see people send me pictures after they've been to one of my talks and they've had a go at something for the first time. And especially with camera clubs, because astronomy clubs, you're kind of preaching to the converted. But with a camera club, these people are not astronomers. So you've got to explain it in a way that's easy to understand how they're going to get the best out of the cameras that they've got. And then they start emailing me their pictures. And I did this after your talk. And then I'm just like, yeah, job well done. <laughs> So um, I think it would be safe to say that if anyone has a question or if they have any interest whatsoever, they'd be free to send you Absolutely, an email. Absolutely, yeah. And we've got all of your details uh, available on our patron site. And we also have it available on our website and any other social media sites as well. But before we wrap this up, one final question. How many times have people asked you to tell them their zodiac sign? Pretty much daily. Um, <laughs> the, the Mary McIntyre Astronomy Facebook page, I get messages there pretty much daily, sometimes multiple times a day from non-native English speakers just saying, you tell me my future, please. And I've given up trying to explain to these people. They don't understand the difference between astrology and astronomy. 
those words, if they're not native English speakers, they look very similar. They don't understand the complex reply that I give to them. And so I'll say to them, I'm sorry, I'm not an astrologer. I'm an astronomer. I used to be quite brutal and said astrology is nonsense. So if anyone takes money from you for this, you're being stiffed. But um... sorry, if you follow zodiac <laughs> signs, Mary's got her own mind. <laughs> but you know, you try and explain that to people, and they come back and they say, "Yeah, but can you tell me my future? I want to know: should I get into a new relationship, or should I leave my husband?" And I'm just like, I can't help. Gonna you have to here. see a therapist. And if it's any consolation, my dad is a native English speaker and he did say, oh, your friend who focuses on astrology. And I said, I'm I'm not going to pass that on. But now it looks like I have. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of my friends famously said that calling an astronomer an astrologer is akin to calling a pediatrician a pedophile. I think (laughs) (laughs) it's probably a bit strong. um, I do wheel that out occasionally on Twitter when things get heated. (laughs) Sometimes you just need to lay it out there. (laughs) Well, at any rate, that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank Mary McIntyre again for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional information on today's topic will be available in the show notes. In the meantime, if you'd like to listen live to Mary's talk on Shadows in Space and the stories they tell on Saturday, October 24th at 2 p.m. British Summertime, consider becoming a patron for just one pound. Otherwise, many thanks to our new patron supporters, Joe and Natasha, for helping to keep our show going. For those of you who've enjoyed the show, please feel free to support our podcast by becoming a patron, where for as little as one pound per month, you can get early access to episodes, as well as live guest lectures and much, much more. With a little bit of financial support, you can help our team to get paid to do what we love so that we can continue to produce more episodes. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.